Yo, what is going on, everybody? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning Wisecracks Movie Podcast. Show me the doop, doop, doop. Ah! Oh, no. <laughs> oh, all right. All right. I am this. Austin, and I am joined here with the by the Show Me the Meaning crew. We've got Ryan. How's it going? Oh, sup, film fans. That's what I said. <laughs> <laughs> got to stick to the script, brother. Yeah, and we've got Raymond. Bababa duk duk duk. How's it going, everybody? <laughs> right on. Well, if people couldn't tell uh, with the intros, we are going to be talking about Jennifer Kent's 2014 horror masterpiece, The Duke. It's a little bit spooky and scary, sort of Halloween-themed, although indirectly because it has nothing to do with Halloween, but we're talking about, like, monsters and shit, so I guess that's kind of Halloween-y, yeah? Yeah, so, totally yeah. Halloween-y. This is a halloween movie, for sure. All right, cool. Well, so before we get An into... An Aussie halloween Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so before we get into the recap and the specifics of the film, let's talk about our first impressions and then what it was like rewatching the film. Let's start with Raymond. Oh, sure. Uh, I watched this when it first came out back in 2014. I checked it out on VOD, and I hadn't watched it since, but it made a really big impression then. A lot of scares that stuck with me, and it was a real pleasure to rewatch it, especially so close to Halloween like this. It's a, it's a nice little mood piece, uh, gets you in a spooky mood, and uh, I'm excited to talk about it with you guys. I was really, really glad to hear you introduce this as Jennifer Kent's masterpiece, because I do think it's great. Um, so it's, uh, it's good to hear that maybe I'm not going to be alone in my enthusiasm on this one. Has yeah. she made many movies? She's made two. She She's working on a third now. Oh, okay, and already made her masterpiece. Wow. Have you? Well, have right. you seen? Have either of you seen her follow-up, yeah. Nightingale? I have not. Yeah, it's very good. I would really recommend it, Ryan. It's not as uh, what would I say? It's it's more earthy. It's more grounded. Um, it's got a little bit more specifics with this regards movie had to like, a lot of earthworms in it. More earthy <laughs> than this movie. Well, it's not it's not straightforward horror. It doesn't have the fantasy yeah. elements, but it is. It, it, it's a pretty brutal film, but it's still really really good and definitely worth the watch. Definitely. Out of my list. So, Ryan, what do you think about uh, the Babadook? First time seeing it, rewatching it. I'm very glad that we decided to do this because my first time was like a filmmaker's worst nightmare. Where I'm, uh, if, if if Jennifer Kent watched me see it the fir- the first time, she would have had a heart attack because I was like half paying attention, kind of parts mm. of it. I was just like, I heard the movie was cool, but. You know, especially for a horror movie, you can't watch a horror movie like that. You got to be focused, you know, and in, in yep. the zone. And 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 I do remember thinking that the atmosphere was sweet. The Babadook itself was cool. The little kid was awesome. <laughs> I will say that 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 my one big takeaway was I didn't really care for the ending the first time I saw it, mm. uh, uh, and I didn't know really how to parse the ending. Now I feel like I after actually sitting down and uh, watching it. Like I should have the first time. I like it a lot more, especially the ending. It's it's a weird, vague way to end your movie. Not vague, but you know, uh, uh, there's a lot to be discussed about the end and why she ended it that way, and what it all means, and me- and the metaphors involved and stuff. And I think that the, this movie is really cool. Yeah. At the end of the day. Yeah, it's tough. The first time I saw it, there was so much hype around this film, right? And yeah. it, 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 I, I always feel like. Like, I'm a failure if I don't buy into the hype. And, you know, it's those, like, external pressures because you want to fit in or you're just told that something's great. And then when you first experience it, if it doesn't live up to that hype, you're like, fuck, either I didn't understand something or I missed something. Is there, I, So that's kind of how I felt. I felt like I just didn't quite get it. And then I rewatched it this time. And to be completely honest, I think I had a similar experience with Ryan. I don't even remember what my first viewing was, but I don't think I was paying attention because I don't know why I wouldn't have been gripped the first time seeing it because I really think this is 
fucking fantastic. Now, I have read about a dozen or two dozen think pieces and like philosophical analyses and psychoanalytics. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I will. I will. We will talk about those things. But since then, right? And so I think maybe that gave me a little bit of extra material to work with going into this film rather than just going in with just this like vague hype. So my first time was kind of a letdown, but then this viewing was absolutely fantastic. Um, I get it. It is a masterpiece. I do think it's wonderful. I, I just listened to a review by Mark Kermode where he says that he thinks that Jennifer Kent kind of changed the face of modern horror with this release. And I think that there's um, something we could talk about in there that I think is probably pretty accurate. Like films like It Follows, This. Um, I think that there's something about maybe like a post-horror genre dealing with psychological thrillers or whatever that we can talk about. And I think there's a lot to work with. So I think the film is absolutely amazing. And I actually can't, I've been really excited, just brimming all morning um, since it's morning here, evening there, but to uh, talk about this film with you guys. Great. So I say we jump and, into the- And you're where, the, you're in Australia, right? Yeah. So you're 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 right there at ground zero for this. This is yeah. a cool uh, collaboration. Yeah, and I wonder cool. if that actually kind of in like increased my enjoyment of it because it takes place in Australia. I've learned a little bit about like uh, Australian horror uh, films, you know, Australian gothic, and then of course they do like outbacky films. And I love like Wake and Fright. Wake where Razorback is great. Wake and um, Wake and Fright's if, oh, yeah. a great one. Wake and Fright Wake is one of the Fright, best. Yeah. Like if people don't know about Australian cinema. Check out the documentary "Not Quite Hollywood." Uh, the it's about like Osploitation yeah. cinema in the '70s when the government was just throwing money at these filmmakers. And some of the best films that we get, some of the best characters, you know, Road Warrior, Mad Max, Razorback. Um, what is it? Alan Partridge. Some of these classic characters come out from that time period. So it's amazing. Quentin Tarantino famously says that like some of these Australian films are his favorite. So "Not Quite Hollywood." Check that out. I think that sets some of the background for my enjoyment of of this film that, that's a that's a good doc that's a good recommendation and i am curious as we get into this if there's anything about australian culture that maybe popped out to you that ryan and i might not have picked up on oh shit no pressure from me. <laughs> no, no 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 i'm just i'm just curious if there was anything <laughs> the cultural that, anything that here. comes to mind <laughs> all right cool well let's jump into the recap so um an australian gothic monster in the domestic world genre film the Babadook centers on single mother Amelia and her son Samuel, who are attempting to build a normal life in suburban Adelaide, nearly seven years after the death of Oscar, the husband and father, who was killed in a car accident while driving Amelia to the hospital to give birth to Sam. Experiencing survivor's guilt, self-loathing, and blaming Samuel, Amelia struggles to maintain suburban appearances. Meanwhile, Samuel has an overactive imagination and displays increasingly difficult behavior, leaving him to be removed from school. One night, Amelia reads a pop-up storybook to Samuel before bed. Titled Mr. Babadook, this story shows a monstrous figure who haunts its victims. Disturbed from this content, Amelia hides the book. Sam, however, becomes more and more convinced that the Babadook is real and is in fact haunting them. Slowly, the effects of this Babadook become more and more real, leading to greater erratic and delusional behavior from Amelia and deeper conviction from Samuel that the Babadook is, in fact, real. Amelia takes the book, tears it apart, only to find it on their doorstep the next morning reassembled. So she burns the book and reports to the police that she and her son are being stalked. However, while in the police station, the police don't really take her claim seriously, and when the officer notices black chalk on her hands, his suspicion peaks, leading Amelia to abruptly leave the police station. 
Amelia gets more isolated and she eventually goes full-on monstrous feminine by being fully possessed by the Babadook. She strangles the family dog and ultimately attempts to kill Sam. Sam, however, escapes and ties her up in the basement, but she's able to get her hands free and she starts strangling Sam. Then he lovingly caresses her face and leaving her to relent from choking him, causing her to puke up some black gunk which expels the Babadook from within her. But Sam reminds her that you can't fully get rid of the Babadook. So there's a final showdown where Amelia furiously confronts the Babadook, making it retreat to the basement of the house. The film closes with things apparently having been resolved between Amelia and Sam, and at his seventh birthday party, Sam collects earthworms in a bowl and gives them to Amelia, where she takes the bowl down into the basement where the monster is still residing, and initially it lunges at her to attack her, but she calms it down and offers the bowl of worms as a little treat slash sacrifice to placate it. Amelia then goes back upstairs and resumes celebrating Sam's B-Day, just the two of them, End of movie. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Got your happy price, price line. Now, Duke, Duke, Duke. Now, that's like super broad strokes. I think this is one of the most intriguing films. And if you've done any research, if you've tried to like read any think pieces, listen to reviews, whatever, there are all kinds of different theories about how to interpret this film. And I've broken it down into three registers that I think will help us to talk about this film. One is we could see this as a straightforward monster film, Right? And it's enjoyable from that level, and I think there's something interesting there. So we could talk about it at that level. Two, it's a film about repressed trauma, right? And it's an allegory. Or three, and this is kind of the fun one, we can talk about Babadook as a queer icon. Because this is something (laughs) that the internet has taken and totally run with, and Babadook has become a queer icon. So go ahead, Ryan, what were you going to say? I was just going to say that that as a monster fan, monster movie fan... You know, and and coming from it from that angle from the first time, because I had heard that this movie was freaky, like super scary, actually scary. That's what I went into the movie uh, going into, uh, and so I think that the ending was as it, it definitely doesn't end like a normal monster movie. You know, not not saying it has to, but it also kind of ends on a on a you know she's literally just befriending or or, or has the Babadook quote unquote <laughs> in in her ba- basement. And that's kind of a weird ending. And then he go. Then her kid does a magic trick and hugs her, which is like a cut to black. An extremely good magic trick for it. Yeah, a like a great one, like a, with a dove. And you're yeah, like, yeah, what yeah. the fuck is going on? Which I hope we talk about that. Whether that whole scene actually is even happening. Obviously, there's some uh, uh, theories about you know whether whether she actually even is is her kid dead? Did she actually kill her kid? And this is like her mm. dream. Is she literally just demented? And none of that's real at the end. Um, or is it kind of a mixture of both where she didn't kill her kid, but she is still dealing with the trauma. So it's, uh, kind of, we're seeing it from this weird perspective. Anyway, there's all sorts of stuff we can go into, but from a monster fan movie, monster movie fan, I don't know why he's switching the words. <laughs> it was a little weird, the ending from the first time, but I like it more because it's obviously a super deep film. Um, I like it more now. Sure. So like I knew when I, when I said that, I knew that you were a fan of monster films. So what, 
what is successful about this film as a monster film, and then why is it weird? Like, do you like it, the monster? Is he scary? Is he creepy? Like, yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. I mean, especially the the, the whole. I, I I I like the the subgenre of let's take kid stuff and make it creepy, fucking. Yeah terrifying and evil and you know like yeah, 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 killer yeah. clowns from outer space whatever yeah i hate that uh, fucking like, movie i like all that stuff so the idea of a super scary kids book that uh uh has this kind of mythology to it is really cool to me and, and i'd never seen done before especially this well and the monster itself especially that scene where it goes in her mouth and then it's kind of going around her ceiling the lighting's all awesome and uh, it's moving really fast, and it, that would freak you out in yeah. real life. And there, there's some, on the movie. some terrific character design aspects of it that I think, absolutely, you know, obviously incorporating it as a, a child's storybook and the way that he's introduced. He's got the top hat, and he's got the trench coat, and the long fingers, and everything like that. But all of those things in isolation are so well chosen because you can hide those exact things in the corners of the frames. And in any other context, it'd be totally innocuous. But because you've read this book, all of a sudden those things are charged with meaning. When she sees the hat rack at the police station, she, you know, her mm. mind fills in the blanks. And when you watch the movie, there are moments where, like, they're kind of tricking you into your mind filling the blanks in. Like in in uh, Amelia's room, there's a a cloth uh, or a mannequin sort of in the corner, and uh, it's just kind of tucked back there in the shadow. And it's just it's just enough to to give you the suggestion of a shape, even when they're not trying to scare you. They still keep you on your toes with those little design elements like that. Yeah. So so what do we think of this reading? Like. Can, is there justification to say that this is a monster film? Like, what is the Babadook from Absolutely. that reading? Uh, yeah, I think it straddles the line between sort of a ghost movie and a monster movie. It, it sort of plays with tropes of uh, of both subgenres. But uh, yeah, I don't think it's I don't think it's unfair to call it both or one or the other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. it's a curse kind of movie, I guess. Ghost curse, sure. But uh, you you get cursed and then you're having to out to go through the consequences of that. Not just that, but I was stricken on this rewatch at some of the similarities between this and uh, a more recent film, Hereditary, that uh, mm. oh, yeah. I didn't I didn't really think of the Babadook when I first watched Hereditary, but uh, coming back to it now, I had forgotten about the sort of quasi possession angle that they play with near the end of this film before Essie Davis throws up the bile and all of that. All that kind of stuff had sort of gone over, not gone over my head when I first watched it, but I didn't really think about it in retrospect. It, to me, I just remembered, you know, oh, it's the creature. I remember the scare. I remember him floating across the kitchen um, and stuff like that. But then on this rewatch, I'm surprised that uh, I literally was checking the time uh, at the point that the Babadook first came into the movie because I was surprised. It was it was about halfway through the mm. film. It wasn't until the 46-minute mark that the Babadook actually shows up in the neighbor's house and you actually see his face. And yeah. before that, you mm. only just see kind of suggestions of shapes and then that one scare in the police department that I, I mentioned before. Um, but it, it, it's kind of crazy how well she ratchets up the tension in that first yeah. half of the movie without even introducing the monster. And I think that's, that's all credit to a really solid script and a great, uh, a great filmmaker behind the camera and a great team in front of the camera enabling that. Vision. Yeah. I, I didn't mention it at the outset, but uh, you know, Ryan did that, you know, about the kid being great, but we also need to give a shout out to Essie Davis because she is phenomenal in this, yeah. you know, like in the hands of a lesser performing artist, I don't know that you could maintain that build. Right. 
mm-hmm. um, because you don't have the monster. It's really the first half of the film. It's a um, mother son film. Yeah, you know, and that's why I mentioned in the recap the uh, that she becomes full on monstrous feminine, which is something yeah. that you also see in Hereditary. And for people who are interested, there is a, a book by a film theorist named Barbara Creed who writes about this theme of the monstrous, the monstrous feminine, and it takes all kinds of different forms, right? Like because we could kind of see. Um, we kind of see Amelia as being a little bit of a Medea type of figure, right? Um, someone who goes mad, something pertaining to a husband, and then she gets revenge by taking it out on the child. So there's something there. Um, you know, the, the witch, the witch theme is a, a monstrous feminine theme. The archaic mother is a, a, a theme, like the womb being this like site where demons are born and sure. things like that, right? And so she, <laughs> right? So there's all these... There's all these themes about the monstrous feminine in horror films. And Barbara Creed, she analyzes this. She's a, you know, a film theorist, but she kind of like does like a little psycho anal- psychoanalysis. So it's really interesting to kind of think about that. I, I'm, I haven't read that. That sounds pretty interesting. I'll, I'll definitely make a note to check it out. But I, I, I would imagine she also kind of draws on the, the reality that, you know, we, we all kind of expect or... Uh, the societal we, I think there is this expectation that there is, there's no closer bond than that between a a mother and their child or a parent and their child. And to test that and to put that kind of tension on it and to have, have the mother in this film be so ambivalent towards her child and in ways that he, he legitimately feels threatened and frightened and betrayed which is just like one of those things that before this movie even becomes supernatural is like, yeah, you you can understand why there's so much tension here. And uh, I mean, that's that's got to be tough to navigate um, as an actor. I kind of got it. I was like, this fucking kid sucks. <laughs> oh, no, no, I know. I agree. I don't think that's matter with your brother. Like that kid, that kid is really like, you know, it, 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 he's a kid that only a mother could love. Like it's, oh, it and really not even a mother a tough, could love. Yeah. It's a tough <laughs> road to hoe for her. Like you genuinely feel for her, but then there's some stuff later on where it gets into those. I don't know why this is, but there's this happens occasionally in movies, and it's very specifically triggering for me. Is when parents will ply their children with junk food and ice cream mm. and, and 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 things Lord like that, life. and not just from like a junk food perspective, but anytime I see parents kind of like you know, uh, uh, trying to bribe their kids essentially as in place of a mea culpa or something like that. It's just, it's so viscerally upsetting to me in a way that like all the Babadook sequences are great, but I had to retreat into my hoodie when she starts like coming out with those bowls of ice cream because her child's complaining about being hungry. And you're just like, (laughs) this is a truly desperate situation. And it's like, she just, she just imagined murdering him and it's like, well, here's a bowl of ice cream for you. It's so fucking heartbreaking. (laughs) It's so, yeah. Why don't you go eat shit? Like it's so goddamn heartbreaking. I'm a huge fan of the evil kid horror subgenre, right? The Omen is a favorite, The Good Son, and uh, The Visitor from the 70s is one of the best. It's a (laughs) rare film, but if you've ever seen The Visitor from the 70s, incredible. That movie's so wild. It's wild, yeah. But, um, so I like, because it is a a great theme, because kids are supposed to be these innocent, you know, uh, people running, you know, trying to learn life, but really, they can be evil, you know, in their own way. They, They don't know, whether they know it or not, some kids know it. 
But then uh, uh, the fact that you see a mom who is supposed to have unconditional love being faced with, oh, my God, I can't do anything for this kid. It's such a like a sympath- empathetic situation where, where you're just like, yeah, I don't know what you would do. What do you yeah. do to that kid? You know, Problem Child's another great film. It's not a horror film. Have you ever seen those um, those Reddit forums of like like scary shit that children say? There's I can't remember one, but I can't remember the specifics of it. But there's one that I will never forget the basic gist of, which was like this father is reporting how he was taking a nap and his like four year old daughter or three year old daughter crawled up on top of him and he opened his eyes from his nap and she said, "I want to tear your face off and wear it as my uh, face." Cool, Jesus. <laughs> And he's like, and he's like, Jesus, where did this come from? I worked with a kid on 9/11 once, and and the kid comes comes up to me and goes, "Did you know? Do you know how? uh, What the youngest kid who person who died on 9/11 was?" I'm like, "No." And he said, "Like two months old." I'm like, Jesus, how do you know that? Why do you Why do you know that? You're like nine. Well, but now doesn't that that kind of relates to this kid Sam, right? Because he like just says shit. Yeah. Right. He just says whatever he's thinking, and the neighbor is like, "Oh, just like the father." And of course, Amelia can't deal with that. Amelia can't deal with like the sort of like free impulse of childhood childhood expression because that kind of reminds uh, reminds her of you know her dead husband, sure. which she has to repress. Um, but like, there is something about children who just kind of say stuff. And, and I think that's creepy because it challenges our norms of society. And one of the themes of this film is all about maintaining appearances, right? Like the child is difficult to deal with. So the school is like, oh, we're going to have a monitor follow him around. And there's that birthday party for their cousin and all the like the suburban moms are all nicely dressed and their makeup is all perfect. And they're complaining about how they don't have time to go to the gym. And Amelia is sitting there like, oh, that must be really fucking hard, right? right? Like. Like, oh, yeah. suburban life is so difficult, you with your kind of like first world problems, right? So there's a lot of stuff kind of going on here about this order of appearances that are trying to be maintained, but that Sam just kind of like with his just expression of honesty and truth and he just kind of like bears witness to the trauma of the death of his father that's kind of like, yeah, my father's dead. He's in a cemetery. He says it so nonchalantly and yeah. matter-of-factly, but society can't deal with that because that's too real, so, like, the, the real of childhood is something that you kind of have to, you, you turn into a monstrosity. You have to control it. Oh, yeah. I was just going to say, it's also kind of interesting the way that Sam is, he is a, a terror. I think we're all, all oh, yeah, in he's, he's the monster. He's all, one of the monsters. We all movie. agree. <laughs> Absolutely. We all agree that he gives his mom a pretty hard time. But when you watch the movie, if you break down what he does, or his his motivation, at least... A lot of the time, he may be wreaking havoc, but it's like, oh, I'm doing this because I want to protect you. I want to, you know, I, I, I build all these weapons. And he's also, re- like, really technologically advanced in the same way that I think that that magic trick at the end kind of puts mm-hmm. a bow on the way that he just, he has all these, he, he he's really skilled with the way that he builds these weapons and stuff. And it may, it may make her life much more difficult but all of it is coming from, I think, a genuinely sweet place. He just doesn't know how to express himself, and it's, and and this is his his way of uh, expressing his love for his mother is that oh, I'm going to kill this monster for you with my baseball launcher or whatever. But mm. instead, he just breaks a bunch of windows, and it just adds to her grief more and more. It's really really tough, but it's yeah, it's such so- a delicately threaded needle the way that she's able to to wring that kind of tension in their relationship while having both of them still probably it seems genuinely love each other. Yeah, and and I think this this is exacerbated by again that 
that like suburban need to control anything that deviates from the quote norm. Like there's that one bit where she says, why can't you just be normal? Yeah. Right? Like why can't you just be polite and just be obedient and um, obey the disciplinary mechanisms of the educational system and just be like the other kids? Why can't you just conform? But the real reason he can't just quote conform is because the trauma. Yeah. Right? He is born in trauma. Like, in a way, he's kind of part of the cause of the trauma. They were taking him to the hospital to yeah. be born, right? And she so, and she blames him for that, certainly. Absolutely. Yeah. No, no, absolutely. And I think that's so important because he's a physical reminder of this event. And she can't acknowledge that. That's why she can't, like, anytime someone mentions Oscar, she is like, shut up, let's not talk about that. Anytime he mentions the father, it's shut up, let's not talk about that. They bury his stuff down in the basement. And this will lead us to the second theme that I think is really important to think about this film. It's a film about repressed trauma, right? Like, I think it's an, we can see this as an allegory because you have the basement that is like the unconscious where you place everything. You put it out of your purview of daily life, the life of order, right? The life of daily suburban appearances, the symbolic, the way you kind of normalcy, let's say. And then down there in the basement, that's where the chaos is. That's where the truth is. That's where the trauma is, right? Mm -hmm. Sure, sure. And there's also something to that that, and I don't know if this is a function of the way that, you know, horror cinematic vocabulary works, just that the basement is naturally scarier than the well-lit areas of the house, so that's where you're going to keep the monster. It just makes sense from a storytelling perspective. But I, I think it may not be coincidental that also, like, the basement is you know, where the foundation of the house is built, like, in in a way mm. that if you read this as a study of grief, because she's going through, you know, she goes through denial, she goes through bargaining with him, plying him with treats, you know, she has these outbursts of anger. And by the end of the movie, if this movie really is, a, you know, it's about grief and about how ultimately we learn to accept and live with our grief, that grief does become foundational to who we are. You know, we have to carry our trauma and it does, it, it affects the way that we interact with others. And it, it can be for good or for ill, but, you know, whether or not it's it's haunting and traumatizing for her, that memory of losing her husband on, on the night that her son was born is undoubtedly, at this point, I would say maybe one of her core memories and one of her most foundational moments in her life. And that was one of those things that, like, it may be a little bit of a stretch on a symbolic level, but I do like that it's, well, you know, the Babadook is part of my core. It's part of my foundation. So down with the cement he goes, you know. I think also to, to, to go back to the kid and how, uh, you know, problematic he is as a, as a kid. But, you know, he also is just a, a kid at the end of the day. He he, right. he doesn't change that throughout the film, really. He's the same kid kind of at the end. He doesn't mm -hmm. have the big aha moment. Like you said, he was born in, this, in trauma. So to him, he doesn't know any better. It's just like, yeah, like you said, he's always had his dad in the cemetery, mm -hmm. no big deal. The, 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 the mom had all these expectations building up to, you know, her first kid, this idyllic life that they were going to have. And like you said... All of it was ripped away in an instant. Not only did she lose her uh, her husband, but she got this demon spawn of Satan as a kid that she has to raise by herself. So now she's like literally from the outset of the film in the worst situation, 
compared to what society, you know, and, and, and her, her, her version of it, yeah. uh, uh, like, oh, wow, my whole normal life is now ripped from me. But then, like you said, she learns to accept it. And at the end, she's just happy, <clears throat> even though the monster is still there. She has to feed it worms every day. Just kind of give it a little <laughs> bit of food, get a little bit of attention, you know, make sure, all right, it's there. Right. We're cool. We're all cool. The monster's still here. All right, we're good. Let's go sell. Let's She's go have kind a birthday of compartmentalized party. Compartmentalized it and and figured out a way to nurture the grief without giving into it. Right. That's right. Yeah, because because the child he says you can never get rid of it. Yeah. So you never get rid of the grief. You never get rid of the trauma. But in psychoanalytic terms, you can become adjusted to it. Sure, absolutely. And and you can learn from it and learn new techniques to cope with it. I maintain though that that I feel like the crazy insane magic trick with the dove is maybe her hinting. That either, like we're, we're <laughs> like 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 we're taking the positive view, optimistic view of what this movie could be in, but it could be it's all she's crazy at the end, basically the Shutter Island ending of Babadook. Yeah, what is what is the what is the purpose of him doing magic? Do well, we that insane like, magic. So there's some trip. interesting themes. It, it's it was too yeah, crazy yeah, cause, for cause a kid. He's learning. And, and he's doing these performances because what does he always say? He's like nothing oh, in my but hands. Remember nothing in my that hands. things are treacherous, right? Mm-hmm. Like reality is treacherous. Um, and so like, that's, that's one of the themes that he learns when he's like following this magician guy. And then, um, and then I guess there are some other themes too. Like when she's watching TV, there's like the cartoon where the wolf like puts on the sheep's clothing, which is kind of like a hidden, like the real truth is buried. Like, oh, is yeah, it, you're right. The kid's dead. You're hundred percent. He's dead. <laughs> Well, there's there's a lot of stuff. I mean, this gets into the uh, just the overall influences from which Jennifer Kent is drawing. Lars von Trier. To... What's that? <laughs> oh yeah, that. Um, but I mean, in in the movie, there are sequences, there are montages that are cut from like Georges Melier films, and um, uh, one yeah. of his Spanish contemporaries. I, I wrote this down. Uh, Segunda de Chaman. Um, one of the clips in that montage is from one of his short films. And both of those guys before, or at least Georges Melier was, I'm not, I'm not 100% sure about uh, uh, Deschamps, but both of those guys, or excuse me, Georges Melier at least, before becoming a filmmaker, he was a magician. And a lot of his early shorts were him sort of incorporating magic into stagecraft and trying to use the camera as an extra... Uh, sort of uh, an extra tool to incorporate or uh, increase his magic tricks or plus them up a little bit and, and just try to figure out a way to take that to a different format. So I wouldn't be surprised if it has something to do with that, just kind of the way that this film overall is, it, it pays a lot of hom- uh, homage to early cinema and, and uh, just the magic of the art form and things like that. Yeah, so I have a theory and my theory extends to all horror films. And I think it's best expressed in a film like Cabin in the Woods or in a film like this. And I was actually thinking about Cabin in the Woods for this precise reason. And this reminds me of this as well. Because also another one of the black and white films that we see them watching is uh, Phantom of the Opera with Lon Chaney, right? And so there's something about the grotesque and the monstrous. And then again with that sheep that is like the wolf, but it's a wolf in sheep's clothing. There's something about like what is the truth inside beyond the appearances? And what is the truth inside beyond the appearances and the unconscious? It's the monstrosity. It's the monster. And so in a film like Cabin in the Woods, the monstrosity, they live below the earth, right? It's the ancients that have to be satisfied through horror films where you have a virgin and then the athlete and all these people have to be sacrificed to placate the unconscious from coming back. 
which is like the return of the repressed. So we have to keep them at bay by satisfying them. And then Cabin in the Woods basically says, that's why we like horror films, because horror, horror films, they show us the monstrosity of who we are, but it allows us to also kind of like placate our sexual and physical and whatever desires, right? And so we can kind of, we don't have to like fully express the monstrosities that we are, you know? We don't fully live you know, um, in that way, which is why it's so awesome when they just like fucking release the button and all the monsters sure. come out all at yeah. once. It's like, yeah, you want monsters? Here you go. Yeah. Every fucking monster <laughs> that human beings could that. ever imagine, there you go. This one is more subtle, but I think it's doing something similar, right? It's grief is that monster that you can never get rid of. It's something that's beneath the surface, and we have to learn to live with it, to be adjusted to it, to kind of feed it, to placate it so that it doesn't haunt us, so that it doesn't cause us to ravage uh, life above the surface, like where we strangle dogs and kill our children, but we can figure out a way to kind of be like, okay, I've got this thing down beneath the surface, and I can feed it a little bit of something-something. Yeah. It needs life. Like, what's what's the purpose of it eating the earthworms? Is there something like substantial in that like is there something about it being death, earthy decay. And wormy there's something yeah i can what see is it? that death and so, decay uh, ryan says death and decay, decay? Um, in the in yeah. the short film that is kind of an inspiration for this that uh she did a few years before the monster Called is, monster yeah yeah. Uh, yeah the monster's left with a, a bottle of milk in that one which is you know maybe you could read into the maternal aspects Motherly? of that maternal but, yeah but i think it all just comes back to that uh, that notion of like you you may want to deny your grief, your trauma, whatever, but you it's part of you, and you have to nourish it specifically. You have to you have to meet it on its own terms in order to process it and learn to accept it. And yeah, I think I think in this one the the earthworms I, I think are a lot more fun than the bottle of milk, especially because the kid is helping her with it. Mm. You know it. It because it's their trauma. It's yeah, not just well, her trauma. The thing is, though, is that there is a big disconnect between the two of them with regards to the trauma they experience. Because he, in his experience, he's never really had a dad at all. He lost his dad that night. So there's, mm -hmm. the, you know, he never knew the person that he lost in a way that, like, I, I, I had a friend. I won't go into too much detail just because to protect their own privacy. But I had a friend who lost uh, her father when we were in high school. And she told me one of the hardest parts was that her mom lost a husband, but she had lost a father, and they couldn't really see eye to eye on that. Mm. And that kind of kept them separate a little bit, and it, and it made it difficult for them to learn how to comfort each other through this. And I can imagine how isolated Amelia must feel in this, because her son didn't have a loss at all. He was, he, he was just born with a single mother, essentially. You know, he... He never knew his dad enough to lose him. So that's another mm. thing that kind of, it, it's such a unique relationship dynamic in this film. I think it's a very good script. Yeah, so there's there's like a Freudian interpretation here. And I don't mean in like a the weird sure, sense that we sure. think of Freud <laughs> where like the kid wants to fuck the mom and kill the father. Oh, yeah. But there's a way to open this up. Uh, there's a way to open this up in a less sort of like um, explicit way that like other psychoanalysts do, which is about like desire and attention. And this child, Sam, like he is overly dependent on his mother's attention and affection. Like, remember the bit where she's trying to get her rocks off and she's got her vibrator out, and right before climax, it gets interrupted. Like, she can't enjoy even. Her source of enjoyment has been taken from her um, in the pleasure sense because now her whole life is lived to nurturing this child. But this child has, like, an 
unlimited stream of access to her, which doesn't allow her to have any of those elements of herself. Like even that coworker that's clearly flirting with her, you know, um, she can't fully, she may enjoy the attention, but she can't quite give herself to actually reach fulfillment in that because she's been kind of cut off from that. There's a sort of like stunting, a castration, if you will, that doesn't allow her to find any source of enjoyment. So I think there's something there about like desire and unfulfillment and like the father being dis- like he's not in the the, the, the trio and you kind of need sure. all three, at least from the kind of like psychoanalytic perspective, to create a sort of like adjusted household. You, you know what bring, I mean? You bring up that side character and I think it brings up an interesting point about this film that I think there are a lot of lesser films that would have that, early love interest play a bigger role later in that he would be one of the victims. But I really love that this movie just abandons him when Amelia starts abandoning people, like almost Mm -hmm. as though he exists in the script specifically so they can illustrate how, like how completely Amelia is isolating herself from the outside world, you know, because he's, he's a pretty significant presence in the first half and then just disappears. And in the same way that the, the, the neighbor who has Parkinson's disease that you would think in in a lot of movies that that would be setting something up, that she would be trying to get into her car and her hands would start to shake when she's unlocking the door to escape mm. from the Babadook or something. But no, it's just it's just a, a, a human touch that adds a, a little something, a little background and a little character to her without, uh, you know, getting in the way or being a, a setup for a cheap gag. And I really admire that about the script. It, it it does all these things that in a conventional horror film would be indicating to the audience that they're going to go for a, a really cheap or unearned scare or something like that. Mm. To, um, to piggyback on what y'all are saying, and also to go back to that dove magic trick, um, I, I think... <laughs> you I, will not let this I do. I, well, well w- what, when I was listening to y'all, I think that I, I figured it out. Or at least a, a new interpretation okay. of it. Lay, lay it on uh, us. Uh, you know, yeah. she had... All, like we said, she had everything ripped from her. All the magic was gone in her life. Disappeared all of a sudden. There's no magic. Everything sucks. It's shit. The, and then the, she had the Babadook have to come and scare her to basically realize, oh, wait, um, there is some magic. And then in the end, it, it ends on a hopeful note. And the kid, all kids think it's just magic is real. You know, kids are magical. You know, innocent. So, uh, so the, basically the fact that he does that dove trick, it's maybe the filmmaker saying, like, just talking about how, he believes it, life hasn't been ruined for him yet, even though he also has gone through this traumatic experience. So why can't she just accept it and 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 enjoy life even amidst the pain, the grief, the trauma, the suffering that uh, life brings at you every day, baby? That's my new interpretation. Okay, so this will be the last. This 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 will be the last thing. Let's talk about this, and then we'll kind of transition into to the mailbag and stuff like that. But this is a question. A lot of people talk about how vague this film is. That's what they say. They say that it's not really clear. Is this monster real? Is it repressed trauma? What is it? But here's my question. There's one particular scene that I think kind of lends itself to to the fact that actually this is repressed trauma and that she is the creator of the Babadook. And it's one when they're in the police station and the chalk. Uh, the black chalk is all over her hands indicating that she has drawn this and that's related to when she's at the birthday party and they say what did you used to do and she used to write children's stories mm-hmm. so here's my my thing i think that the better reading of this film is that she was the babadook all along that the babadook and and that she wrote the story she reassembled the book um and that's her 
in a way, almost externalizing this grief to, in order to frighten her child as a sort of like revenge. And this is why I said the Medea figure. So what do you think about that? Do you think that I'm, am I stretching it or is there enough evidence? I think you're stretching it, but it sounds awesome. And I like that interpretation. <laughs> it's of this a fun, story. it's definitely a fun interpretation. I always thought that it was soot on her hands. Cause it's right after she burns the book in the, I in think the that's intentionally grill. vague. That's what okay. I thought the first time that I watched it. And then I watched it this time and I said, Oh no, because she wrote children's books. That's, then, that's a good you know, call. I didn't put those those two together, but I I mean that that wouldn't surprise me. This is a very carefully considered script, so that that would be a, a fun little wrinkle to play with if if you were to rewatch it just in that light. I wonder if you could pick out more little pieces of evidence to support that. Yeah. Okay, and then the very last thing, just because we have to do it because this has happened since I think about 2015, 2016, Babadook has become an online queer icon. Okay, do you guys know about this? And yeah. do you have any comments on no. this? No. Explain it Raymond, to me. Raymond, do you know about this? Yes. I think okay. I mentioned it in the People first conversation. Like about the Babadook? Well, basically, you know how Netflix will have those little algorithmically designed subgenres? Like right now, they've got a Black Lives Matter collection. They have, you know, they probably have, oh, scary stories for Halloween. So a while back, they had one of those subsections that basically said LGBT, LGBTQ stories. And in the midst of a bunch of movies that were about uh, LGBT love stories or just incorporating those kinds of characters, there was just the Babadook right in the middle of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. it was just one of those things where, like, clearly there was something off about the algorithm and it just somehow ended up there. But the Internet just took it and ran with it. And Got that it. year at Pride, there were a bunch of people. It's, I mean, it's great. I mean, this year when uh, I remember there were two or three Babadook references that I saw at the Pride March, which, uh, I mean, it's it's stuck around for better or worse. I think, awesome. and, I think it's been and, and to put And to put a little meat on it, the reason now that people are writing think pieces, there are actually some Vox pieces and Guardian pieces. You can actually read this by queer authors who are saying this is why. And they say, is it satire? Is it sardonic? Like, maybe. But the point is, is that the reason is that what you have is a figure who is androgynous, and this figure disrupts domestic, um, let's say, typical heteronormative life by causing chaos, by kind of like confronting a white heteronormative family that is dealing with mm. the sort of repression of an Oedipal male-female child Edible uh, typical male? suburban relationship. Okay. And so that that is this kind of like queerness. And queer not in the sense of explicitly being homosexual, but queer in the sense of being askew, different, sure. outside, excessive of, beyond, you know, kind of the quote weird, but in a positive way of, of stranging, of queering, if you will, this otherwise domestic, you know, suburban story. And so that's kind of, so then people are like, you know, there are all these like great twi Twitter accounts that are like, you know, you can't tell me that the Babadook isn't like the greatest queer icon of the last decade and stuff like that. So they're totally running with it and owning it. And it's really kind of uh, amazing. Now, now, now are, are you saying that the person who's behind putting these movies and these playlists on Netflix thought that when they put it in there? Or did well, they say that that I was know, an accident all, all now we're trying to backlog that? Is, all of Netflix's stuff is algorithmic. So there's there wasn't somebody going through and going, oh, I'm reading this. It's It was literally... I don't know if they ever accounted for it. It was just one of those things, like a little glitch in the matrix, so to speak. Okay. Um, so yeah, yeah. But I do, I do love how much the community has just picked it up yes. and run with it. And that it's just, well, he's ours now. So you guys, That's right. like straights get fucked. Babadook is ours. <laughs>
That's right. Well, I think on that note, let's go ahead and uh, wrap up the discussion of this film. I think we all agree it's worth a watch if you haven't seen it. Um, you know, email us with any questions, thoughts, theories. What do you guys think about it? Uh, we're going to transition now into the mailbag. Can I say and, one uh, we've thing? Got... Oh, yeah, go ahead, Remy. Before the mailbag, just real quick, I just want to do a, a, a real quick appreciation corner for the uh, art department on this movie. This set is incredible. Uh, uh, the production designer, Alex Holmes, who is the co-art director with Karen Hannaford, they they did all this incredible stuff with the house, casting it primarily in blues and grays. All the finishing, the doorways are in black. The the pine wood floors are, are finished three times over in black varnish. And it just gives this quality that, like, when working hand-in-hand with Heather Wallace's wardrobe design, which predominantly puts S.E. Davis in pinks, like, it's just this overcast apartment that's constantly crushing her. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's just and so... he's gone again. It's so cool. <laughs> All right. Um, well, to the mailbag. To wrap this up, I will say, it, yeah, to the mailbag, it is important to always give a shout-out to the art department because they're the unsung heroes in these types of films. Production, things like that. They never get any love so you definitely got this is literally an art house film it is art art department for that um, okay um so what we're going to do is we're going to jump into the mailbag we have one voicemail this week that we're going to talk about it comes from ryan um just as a reminder if you want to give us a call you can email us at 1-213-534-8807 that's one two one three five three four eight eight zero seven, and you can leave a voicemail as Ryan did. So let's turn it over to Ryan. Hey, Wisecrack, this is Ryan B., longtime fan. I just wanted to comment on the uh, I've Been Thinking of Ending Things movie. Truly awful movie, don't get me wrong, but I did want to add something that I think might add to the quality of this truly awful movie, and it relates to an interview I read about Synecdoche, New York, when uh, Kaufman had said that he worried that film was a dead art form because there was um, a limited interaction between the artist and the audience. And so he wanted to create a movie that was different every time he watched it. So that vague quality in Synecdoche, New York, and in I'm Thinking of Ending Things, where people you know, come in and out of roles and even change names um, and dynamics in their relationship, I think reflects the way that when the audience sits down and watches the movie again, maybe five years later, whether they're in a happy relationship or had just gone through a breakup or they're maybe dealing with the fact that their parents might die soon. All of those things are supposed to be uh, present in the audience's mind while they're watching these movies. And I think that's integral to the process. So I just thought I'd give him, you know, the benefit of the doubt there. Still, it was an awful movie. Thank you. Thanks for everything you do, guys. Bye. Yeah, thank you, Ryan. All right, let me kick this over to the other Ryan. Our Ryan, what do you think? Um, Yeah, so I, I'm a char- huge Charlie Kaufman head, and I think that his scripts are so well-written and dense usually, uh, and they're... And, you do pick up a lot on a rewatch of being John Malkovich adaptation, eternal sunshine, all these movies that had directors, I think that kind of probably took his long monologues and chopped them down and was like, all right, we don't need to do this part where you have the actors going in and out. Uh, uh, Cause his movies, he goes, I think way too overboard on that stuff. I love Synecdoche, New York. I think it works, but also why well, it works for me. I know it doesn't work for everybody mm. and I get that, but this movie, I think, he took that to a whole other level and in and, and the way that just wasn't entertaining. 
at the end of the day, that's what you got to do uh, for your movie. It would be a little entertaining. And I think that he just went so far into the conceptual, what if these characters meant this and whatever. Like, that movie just sucked and it's up so far up its own ass. It's not even worth analyzing a lot of it. But, uh, so yeah, I just, I hope he takes a hold of, of this this thing he's trying to do, like this guy explained, and and does a good version of it soon. Sorry, what do you think, sorry Charlie, if you're watching this. I know. <laughs> well, what do you I, think, um, Raymond? I'm glad that Ryan got a, a, another chance to talk about this because I, I think we, we talked about it last week. Um, I, I uh, had to tag team with Michael to try and defend the movie a little bit. Um, you know, oh, no. I don't. I don't think it's an awful movie, but uh, I do recognize the criticisms of it, and I, I. I do think a lot of the a lot of the criticism surrounding it is valid, um, but I still think it's worthwhile. I think it's an interesting flick, and uh, I don't know if you're interested on my my thoughts on it. I, I I talked a little bit more about it last week, but we're running short on time now. Yeah, I mean, I think that it really comes down to what is a film. Like Ryan just said, it's about entertaining, and so for me, sure. I actually really enjoy like the films of Belatar, for example, who's one of my favorite filmmakers in sure. slow cinema. And they're not entertaining. They're well, polarizing. hold on a minute. I, I, by, by, by entertaining, I don't, I don't mean it has to be Michael Bay, you know, special <laughs> effects, you know, whatever. I, I love slow cinema too. That's entertaining. But it's it, you can't punish your audience and expect it to be like, oh, well, that's what I meant to do is make it not yeah. fun to I, don't, watch. I wouldn't call I'm thinking of anything's a punishing experience. It, it, it's certainly – sometimes it feels like it's, it's looking – for a purpose or looking for meaning and maybe it, it could have been a, a little bit cleaner or more direct or, or yeah, less okay. obtuse. Um, but I, I think there's still some, some stuff he's playing with cinematic language in a lot of scenes and I find it particularly compelling at certain points, but I, I do agree that he, he made a movie that's pretty tough to defend uh, <laughs> if, unless because a lot of people say, oh, you either love it or you hate it. And it's like, I didn't hate it, um, but I, <laughs> I, I don't love it enough to go to the mat for it. I think it's a pretty interesting film. And for what it's worth, I'm glad that it's out there. And I'm also glad that he got to make a Charlie Kaufman movie out of uh, something that wasn't his source material. He still figured out a way to yeah. tell his story. For sure. All right. So, uh, again, if you have any further comments on all this madness, you can call us or, alternatively, you can email us. And I'm going to jump into the email portion of the mailbag now. Uh, you can email us at movies at wisecrack.co. That's C-O, not com. So, movies at wisecrack.co. All right. So, this one is more of a broad kind of request about something that we could or maybe should discuss. And I wanted to feed it to you guys. This comes from D. Uh, D says... Hello, folks. You guys have to discuss Alex Proyas' classic film, Dark City, from 1998. It it has a lot of philosophy in it, philosophy of the self, of identity, memories, origins, film noir, etc., etc. I hope that you guys choose to watch and discuss this film without having to place it in a poll. So let me just ask you all, what are your thoughts of Dark City, if we can do so in a short amount of time without maybe having to do a full episode, or maybe we will do a full episode in the future. Give us a little teaser. Ryan, you had a pretty uh, strong reaction to that. What do you think? I mean, it's just a great uh, cult film that uh, Alex Proyas knows how to make, build a world, we'll say. And he has really cool, heady concepts that are executed super well. Dark City's right up there with his best work. So highly recommend anyone going to see it uh, if you haven't seen it already. In terms of doing this podcast, you know, we always talk about candies and vegetables. At least we did back in the day. Jared would say, all right. 
If we're going to do, you know, uh, uh, right. a Transformers, or we, we got to do like four Transformers if we want to do <laughs> one, uh, uh, whatever this movie was. What, what movie were we talking about? Dark City. You know? <laughs> oh, I thought you were like <laughs> yeah. the Babadook? <laughs> no, no, no. Well, the Babadook, I don't know. I guess it's kind of gotten more of a writes, mainstream appeal. So at this Dark point. City Dark City's a, a broccoli's kind of I film. Wouldn't, I, wouldn't I love it. it. I don't even think of it as vegetables. I think it's a pretty entertaining movie. Um, I don't, it's not about entertaining. It's about how many people know about the movie. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, it's I, like I Dark it's, City is not going to get those clicks, baby. Sure, sure. That's good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, no, like, I don't know. Like, Bo- like Borat will. I, yeah. haven't, seen, <laughs> or Transformers I haven't seen 3. Dark City right. uh, in a long time. I remember thinking it was just okay, but maybe if I watched it again, there there might have been some stuff that I didn't really latch on to that I, I, may, I may enjoy more on a rewatch. So I, I'd be down to watch it with you guys. Cool. All right. And then so the last uh, email that we'll get into comes from Adam. He says, hey, Wisecrack, been thinking about the Social Dilemma documentary. And I remember a part where one of the talking heads says something to the effect of, we're raising a generation that has been trained to react to stress by seeking comfort in their phones. The idea idea being that this is socially stunting our youth and harming society. My question is, at what time did society in general have healthy coping mechanisms? The way I I see it in decades past, the general reaction was to look for comfort in a bottle of alcohol, pack of cigarettes, or by simply repressing emotions in general is this an accurate view or am i being too dismissive of past generations mental health thank you for the podcast big fan hope you keep making these for a long time to come that's so exactly think, where my there... head was during the yeah. podcast was was hey we you know if you think about it yeah this is unique with the technology uh, involved but really the same social and psychological problems we've had it's ad- people uh advertisers with money trying to get us to to, to buy stuff and this time they're just using algorithms and and back in the day, how would you placate yourself? How would you spend your time, your free time, your leisure time? For one, you didn't have a lot of leisure time back in the day. <laughs> so you, that wasn't as much of an issue. But yeah, what? You'd play with the ball. You'd, uh, anyway. Play uh, with the ball. Yeah, you just play with the ball. Kick a ball. Throw, throw things over the fence. Throw the, the stick over, over the pigs. And anyway, right. now we have a lot more leisure time. And yeah, I get it that, it's, that you want to use it or have your kids not grow up like zombies and stuff. Like, this is a new problem but i definitely think it's kind of more the same in terms of the generational issue i what do y'all think i do i mean i have i have a lot of thoughts on this but uh in in the interest of brevity yeah Yeah, in the interest of brevity i think you're probably hitting on something ryan and uh austin you kind of mentioned the same that um or i think it was the email that uh sort of jump to this point that you know humans are going to have addictive personalities and we will find avenues for those addictions or that compulsive behavior and uh, i have serious issues with social media i think there are a lot of issues to be addressed with social media but um i i think there's a lot more dangerous stuff out there one thing i will will say about that uh, about because i have thought about that conversation about the social dilemma and we we really didn't talk about the political stuff that much in that conversation or the political implications, political misinformation, fact checking and all that stuff. We really kind of were when I, I feel like I was being a little dismissive in the conversation too, but really what I was talking about was, yeah, people trying to sell me shoes and stuff and me feeling like I have the force of will to, to fight that off. But, you know, mass political disinformation, especially with like other governments and stuff, that's a whole other conversation. We should have some time about the social dilemma. (laughs) Yeah, I guess the real issue is, is, is there ever a time that we can romanticize and say that was the pure past when we had no, perfectly healthy? No, that's the healthy. thing. Things that's have right. been fucked forever. Yeah, and, that's that, right. and honestly, <laughs> this, is the, this is the time, baby. This is the best time that has ever happened. This moment, 
live it, Mr. Internet people out there. Mr. Mrs. Internet people, you're in the best time ever. Show me the meaning! Ryan is going to be our champion, sloganeering of positivity. This is yes. the best time ever. So if you want to contribute to the best time in society, uh, you can call us again at 1-213-534-8807, or you can email us, movies at wisecrack.co. All right, everybody, let's sign off. Where can we find y'all on the internet? You can find me. Literally, you have a computer, the most powerful computer ever, on your phone. You're walking around with it everywhere. <laughs> it's fucking insane. You can order food, cars, anything, plane tickets, and go to. you can go to Ryan Shorts on YouTube or Twitter or whatever and Ryan's Game Show and just find stuff there. I got a new Paranormal Activity short that's up there right now. I mean, wow, just make it. I made it on my phone, too. I mean, are you kidding me? I made a, vi a movie on my phone, and about, you know, thousands of people are about to watch it, hopefully. Yeah, take that, New Best Hollywood. Time you ever. guys needed budgets, and you needed stories, and you needed film stock. We can just do it now on yeah. our freaking monthly payment plan that we have with our with our technology. Look, 2020 is, is it sucks, whatever, but guess what? It's also it's awesome, too. It's the best time ever. It's the best time ever, but also I get it. Sometimes the best times ever, there's the worst times ever in the middle of it. It's okay. We'll get through it. Let's go. Raymond, Raymond where can people find you on the internet? Okay, you can find me on uh, Twitter and Letterboxd at Crematoria. Uh, my name's up there on the list or whatever, or on the uh, video right now. Um, oh, another thing is, uh, Ryan, since you plugged one of your shorts, um, I'm definitely going to check out your Paranormal short. Uh, a Thank few you. years ago, I did my first short film, and it's a, a little fun-sized fright flick that's perfect for Halloween. So if you're looking for something Sick. fun to uh, start off your horror movie watching this year, uh, yeah. I'll, What's it called? I'll re up a link to it on my Twitter. So uh, go ahead and uh, check out my Twitter at Crematoria, and uh, I'll, I'll post a new link to uh, my first short, Little Pigs. Little Pigs. Amazing. That sounds great. Um, and yeah, you can hit me up on Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden. My. Um, Instagram is AUS underscore H-A-Y. I, too, dabble in filmmaking. We just released a feature film this year that was an adaptation of a book. It's like an experimental avant-garde montage cinema directed by the uh, Canadian wunderkind Isaiah Medina that I produced. Um, so oh, yeah. that you can find. It's That's called awesome. Inventing the Future. It's live on YouTube. Um, and then, uh, yeah, you can just check out my IMDb. My name is Austin Hayden Smith, but my IMDb is Austin Hayden. So whatever. You can find my stuff. But yeah. All right. We love you. Happy One Halloween. Happy Halloween, Spooky everybody. Times. Oh, yeah. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. Have a safe holiday. Yeah. Ryan, send us out, brother. Show me the meaning. Happy Halloween from Wise Crack. Trick or treat. Smell my feet. <laughs>